Here's what's on offer. Politicians love bragging about bills they pass. It reduces inflation, it lowers their costs, and it fights climate change. Wow, so much good. We focus on getting things done. No wonder people say they want more government. But wait a second. Government isn't Santa Claus bringing us things. Government is force. Politicians forcibly take money from you so they can spend it the way they want. With every new law, we individuals are a little less free. It's the reason the land of the free is lost freedom in freedom rankings. We've been following year by year since 1995. The Heritage Foundation ranks economic freedom across the globe. I've been reporting on freedom rankings for years. This year, the U.S. slipped to its worst ever score. We once ranked fourth in the world, then fell to ninth. The United States, which fell again. We came in 17th this year, well behind many other countries. Now we're number 25. If you care about living a prosperous life, you should care about what government policies are, including their economic policies. Heritage ranks countries' freedom based on things like rule of law, and whether taxes and regulations are reasonable. Are markets open to newcomers? And finally, having a government that lives within its means. And John, that's been the number one way the United States has been falling. Our fiscal health score is the worst in the world. Because we spend so much more than we have. This was the biggest spending bill in U.S. history. The national debt now tops $31 trillion. Free childcare, free this, free that. Sounds good for my freedom. It sounds great, but sooner or later you run out of other people's money. And you might say, well, what does government spending have to do with freedom? It has a lot to do with freedom. With more and more government money out the door, everything costs more. All-time high prices. When government prints more money to fund its deficits. You have more dollars chasing fewer goods, which leads to inflation. That leaves you with less financial freedom. Disposable income is down. People are really struggling to be able to pay their energy bills. This is a five-minute vote. Also, when government makes more choices... The bill is passed. You have fewer choices, or in some cases, no choice. Natural gas hookups will be banned. New rent control measures. Ban all new gas-powered vehicles. In addition, Americans, thousands of bureaucrats, add regulations that take away freedom. That's just one example of our smothering government and why we keep dropping places. A smothering government is what less free countries have a lot of. India ranks toward the bottom of the freedom list because in India, bureaucrats like these have the power to prevent anyone from trying new things. People fill out form after form and then wait and wait for weeks or years. How many great ideas die here waiting in these piles? When an idea does get through the bureaucracy, investors need up to 70 different approvals to buy in. That's a reason India stays poor. It could be worse. The most repressed people in the world are trapped in countries at the very bottom of the freedom list, places like Venezuela. Once a rich country, awash in oil money, now the economy is in free fall. With socialists in charge, confiscating businesses, wealth disappeared. Now people struggle to find food. People wait for hours in government lines, fighting over whatever morsels might be left. Of course, the least free country on the freedom list is North Korea. The dear leader and his cronies decide most everything, and people suffer. Life there sucks. 
Yes, it does. It's bad in the economic sphere, just as it is on the political sphere. So many of these things, they reinforce each other. The freer a country is economically, the better off they are. If you want to see how the free market really works, this is the place to come. Hong Kong was a good example of how economic freedom makes life better. Years ago, I interviewed Nobel Prize winning economist Milton Friedman about that. I was in Hong Kong in the 1950s, and you would never have wanted to live there. But they had the one key ingredient, freedom. In just 30 years, Hong Kongers moved from poverty to prosperity because Hong Kong's British rulers put few obstacles in the way of trying new things, like starting a business. I started one just by handing in one form. Thank you, sir. The next morning, I opened Stossel Enterprises. <laughs> it was a stupid business, selling things like American Frisbees. But that chance to try new things is what allowed Hong Kong to prosper. Then England gave Hong Kong back to China with a condition. That China's leaders would respect Hong Kong's free and open society. But China didn't respect Hong Kong's open society. Hong Kong is now a police state. People protested. At one point, nearly a third of the country went into the street. But the huge demonstrations didn't derail the Communist Party's crackdown. Now you don't even rank Hong Kong. We got to the point where we could no longer consider them separate from Communist China, sadly. Finally, the success stories. Today, the world's most economically free countries are Taiwan, a country with a government that spends less than other countries. Ireland, which attracts businesses from around the world because of its low tax rates. Welcome to Switzerland. Switzerland, which also has low taxes, little corruption, and a fraction of our regulation. And number one, Singapore, which also has low taxes, little regulation, and is an international trade hub because it has zero tariffs. You think you know Singapore? It's time to reimagine. From an economic standpoint, Singapore is top in the world. Would you want to live in Singapore? I ask that because in Singapore, you can't speak freely. The government silences critics. Public assembly without a police permit's illegal. And Singapore hangs people who traffic in marijuana. Your point is a good one, which is this isn't a measure of freedom overall. It's a measure of economic freedom. There's other freedoms that are important. So this doesn't measure at all religious freedom, for example, or First Amendment freedom. Yeah, that's why I don't much like your, your list. I prefer Cato's, which is, talks about personal freedom, too. Our point is really to have a, a data longevity to look at, does economic freedom lead to freer, more prosperous, healthier, and cleaner environments? And it does. It sure does. Something to remember next time our politicians print more money and take away our choices. They're going to offer you free stuff. It's all going to sound good on one level. But in fact, their policies are in all likelihood going to make things worse. As I mentioned, there are other useful freedom rankings like the Cato Institutes. I made a video on theirs a few years ago. You can watch it here. If you could spend $30 billion trying to solve the world's problems, how would you spend it? Real estate. 
You would build houses for people? Yes, I'm an architect. People have very different ideas about how to help the world. Healthcare and uh, water access. Definitely work towards eradicating homelessness. Climate change. Climate change was the most common answer. Climate. Fix the climate. Tackling climate change. That's what people think is the most important stuff. It's not surprising if you live in the rich world. Bjorn Lomberg studies solutions for the world's biggest problems. He's not surprised that rich people worry about climate change. We're constantly told climate change is impacting everything from a conception to pregnancy and your children. Trees will die and fall down. Countries will be underwater. Okay, affluent people are right to worry that climate change might cause big problems someday. But if you live most other places on the planet, you're worried about the fact that your kids might die from easily curable diseases tonight. Lomberg spent years consulting with all sorts of experts to try to find the smartest solutions to the world's biggest problems. The point is not that climate change is not also an issue, but we also just need to have a sense of proportion and ask ourselves, where can we spend dollars and actually do a lot of good versus where can we spend dollars and just do a little good? 20 years ago, the UN came out with development goals that did help. Yes, they basically said, Let's get people out of poverty, out of hunger. Let's get kids into school. Let's stop moms and let's stop kids from dying. That and global capitalism lifted millions out of poverty. But now the UN pushes so-called sustainable development goals. They promise everything. We're going to get rid of poverty, hunger, disease. We're going to fix war, corruption, climate change. But fighting climate change alone will cost trillions and might do little. If we spend way too much money ineffectively on climate, not only are we not fixing climate, but we're also wasting an enormous amount of money that could have been spent on all these other things. We should spend on the best things first, says Lomberg. $35 billion could save 4.2 million lives in the poor part of the world each and every year. Treating tuberculosis, for example. An estimated 1.8 billion people globally are infected with TB. People in America don't even talk about that. Nobody in rich world countries die from tuberculosis. But in poor countries, they still do. If you spend about $5.5 billion, you could save most of those people. Hundreds of thousands more die from malaria. The malaria parasite continues to have a devastating impact. Buying bed nets with insecticides that kill mosquitoes would save lots of lives. So would spending on vaccines for kids and other relatively simple things. These ideas seem common sense and you want to help people and yet people hate you. <laughs> well, people, some people hate me. One hater shoved a pie in his face when he was <laughs> signing books. That's the well, thing you say about the environment, which is complete bullshit. You're lying about climate change. He's later apologized, and now he's actually getting pied himself. But others still call Lomberg the devil. This guy needs to be taken down. He should be taken down for saying poor people have bigger problems than climate change? I get why people get upset. Climate change might kill poor people, too. It certainly will, and climate change is more damaging for poor people. But remember... Everything is worse for poor people because they're poor. But the activists still behave as if climate change is the world's biggest problem. They block roads and stop freeways. The government gives me no choice. They've sprayed paint onto government buildings. These two threw soup at a Van Gogh. Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting 
or the protection of our planet. People really believe they have no future. I'm here because I don't have a future. Unmitigated scaremongering leads to ineffective political action because you're like, we gotta do something right now. This is not some hypothetical, it's happening now. Tell How many what, people have to die before what, you take this seriously? We actually need to have a conversation about where do we spend money well compared to where do we just spend money and feel virtuous about ourselves. In a few weeks, I'll release a longer video with Lomberg in which we'll examine why he's a skeptical environmentalist and he'll explain other, more efficient ways to help the world. To make sure you get our future videos, please subscribe and hit the notification bell. Tensions are running high. Chris Rufo makes some people very mad. Who is Rufo? He's a journalist who once made documentaries for PBS about things like baseball in China and poverty in America. Seems like poverty is kind of like a really mean disease. But then his poverty research brought him odd leaks from government poverty workers. Mid-level bureaucrats so exasperated with what was happening, they started feeding me documents. Documents like these that reveal Seattle's government trained employees to practice self-talk that affirms their complicity in racism and white people should work on undoing your own whiteness. The intention is to have a, an emotional lever against you no matter what you do. What's in it for them? Why do it? Career advancement and then cultural and emotional power over others. He says today's so-called diversity training is based on the obscure academic specialty critical race theory. Tweeting examples of it brought lots of responses. It really kind of snowballed. I did you know, one story and then I'd get, you know, five or six people sending me documents that I might package into another story. And then suddenly it was a hundred people and a thousand people. He learned the DEI officials at the University of Texas had issued a language guide that recommended using the word women spelled W-I-M-M-I-N in order to not use the word men. After Rufo publicized that, the university removed its language guide. What are these people doing? Uh, to the point where they have time to be policing language and replacing words with total absurdities. A worker at Sandia Labs, the big defense contractor, sent Rufo Sandia's new hiring rules. At least one qualified woman and a qualified minority must be interviewed. Sounds fair. Make up for past discrimination. Certainly you should be open to and encouraging a wide variety of people to apply to jobs. But when we're talking especially about uh, nuclear weapons, you need to have the most capable individuals regardless of race or sex. A Sandia employee described Sandia's mandatory training. A three-day camp where they had to atone for their white privilege, atone for their heterosexual privilege, and even write letters of apology to imaginary women and people of color. And this kind of thing is happening, unfortunately, all over the country. Rufo's critics say he's pushing moral panic. Chris Rufo, one of the conservative activists who's pursuing this moral panic. The New Yorker did a big profile on you and titled it the conservative who invented the conflict over critical race theory. You invented this. I actually post all of the original source documents for every one of my stories. Wait, Let wait, me respond. Wait, 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 this is, this is not a monologue. This one should moment. be a dialogue, no, right? Uh, Am I right? It's, well, it's my show. His media opponents accuse him of making things up. 
You made up your own thing, bro. You made, my friend, you made up your own thing. It's so shameful when it's exposed to the sunlight that they've engaged in these accusations as a form of denial. DEI departments do tell workers, be less white. All 100 of the Fortune 100 companies have DEI bureaucracies. It's seen as second nature to, for example, endorse Black Lives Matter, a left-wing kind of racial activist organization uh, that was responsible for uh, rioting, violence. But if you were to say, you know, I'm pro-life and I want to have a a pro-life message in a corporate setting, it would be shut down immediately. You would certainly uh, be at risk of, of, of ostracization, maybe even losing your job. Why are only one set of Uh, narratives and political ideologies allowed. Because America's history of slavery and oppression is just so bad. But that's also based on a lie. Of course, slavery is an abominable uh, historical legacy in the United States. But the the record of the United States on on slavery um, on a comparative basis is much better uh, than almost anywhere else. The idea is that the founders fought the revolution to protect slavery. That was one of the claims in the 1619 Project, which is, you know, kind of so mind-boggling that even the Marxist historians, um, you know, debunked it and said this is absolutely preposterous. Florida is where woke goes to die. In Florida, Governor DeSantis appointed Rufo trustee of a state-funded college. Now Rufo is no longer just a journalist; he has authority. Although DeSantis still seems not to know his name. Christopher Russo from the Manhattan Institute. Rufo quickly made big changes. We fired the director of DEI and abolished her entire department. That upset activists at the school. (laughs) The Washington Post covered them protesting Rufo's appointment. The vast majority of you, 90, 95% roughly, agree with me that there are significant problems here. No. You are the problem. You are the problem. No, I'm not the problem. I'm actually the solution. At one point, the University of Provost tried to stop Rufo from speaking, saying there'd been an anonymous threat. We cannot put our community at risk. This is a new technique for your opponents to stop you from speaking, to raise the issue of danger and then say it's too dangerous, we can't allow you to speak. That's right. Someone sent in a death threat. Anybody who enters this event at this point is at risk. We cannot give veto power to anyone who makes an anonymous threat because what will happen is that they'll make an anonymous threat uh, before anything that they don't like. Rufo insisted the meeting go forward. We're the board members. We voted. We have two to one. We're not going to let you shut this down. The provost later resigned. Florida's now banned all public universities from funding DEI programs and from claiming that systemic racism and sexism are inherent in the U.S. Free speech advocates call that flatly unconstitutional. I worry about things you and DeSantis are doing. It just feels authoritarian on the other side. A teacher cannot teach the 1619 Project? It's not allowed in Florida. We have impressionable young kids that should not be taught race hatred. And these are common sense restrictions that aren't authoritarian. 
They're simply acknowledging that the state is the authority in the public schools. My neck of the woods, the Northeast, which leans left, maybe those states will ban using my videos in classrooms or they'll ban teaching Milton Friedman in free markets. That's okay. I mean, I think that's probably already the status quo in most of these blue states. I don't think that Seattle public schools, San Francisco public schools and Boston public schools are are heavy on the Milton Friedman curriculum. Why is the state the authority? Why not local school boards? I would prefer that to the current system. But the fact is that that's not the status quo in any of the 50 states. You don't worry that in the future, the new Florida governor will just flip these things and require teaching of critical race theory? Of course I worry about that. But that's what democracy is for. That's what politics is for. Really? That's what politics is for? Curriculum changes every election? I think we're better off if politicians butt out. Give power back to parents with school choice. Then parents can decide whether they want their kids to focus on the 1619 project or what Rufo prefers. Reading Aquinas, the founders, Lincoln, Frederick Douglass. Rufo supports school choice, but today most parents have no choice. Many are stuck with teachers like this who say every teacher must say systemic racism dominates America. If you don't believe in systemic racism and how it negatively impacts our students of color and don't want to help dismantle those systems, please don't teach. These are not isolated incidents, but in fact, this is the mainstream uh, in almost all of our institutions. Soon we'll release our full interview with Chris Rufo. take back our lives from capitalism and greed. The greed of the fossil fuel industry is literally destroying our planet. Saving the planet, say these activists, requires socialism because socialism creates an environment that provides for all people, not just the privileged few. It's simply nonsense, just nonsense. Tom Palmer, unlike AOC and most of us, has spent lots of time in socialist countries. Decades ago, he smuggled books into the Soviet Union. More recently, he's been driving in supplies for Ukraine. What he's seen convinces him that AOC and Bernie and these protesters are just wrong about what's green. We tried socialism, so we ran the experiment. It was a catastrophe. Worst environmental record on the planet. In China, socialist leaders noticed that sparrows ate valuable grain. So they launched a campaign encouraging people to kill every sparrow. Billions of birds were killed. It was insanity. People banged pans and blew horns, scaring the birds into staying in the air for longer than sparrows can tolerate. These poor birds were exhausted and died and fell from the skies. Officials with guns shot the birds. You look at the people who were chasing down and killing the sparrows in the old films, they were into it. If you failed to show enough enthusiasm for the socialist goals of the party, you were going to be in trouble. The party's campaign succeeded. People killed nearly every sparrow. But all it takes is two minutes of thinking to figure, wait a minute, who's going to eat all the bugs? Without the birds, insects multiplied and destroyed more crops than the sparrows had. People starved as a consequence of that. 
people confuse socialism with just a nice government or a government that's sweet or made up of my friends. In reality, socialism means central planning. Over time, that ends badly. What AOC wants to do is basically give the Pentagon or similar agencies control over the entire society. And she thinks that's gonna turn out well. It's a joke. China's central planners keep making mistakes. Many bodies of water are bright green because fertilizer runoff created algae blooms. It kills everything. Socialism creates pollution wherever it's been tried. We see it in China. And we saw it in Soviet Russia. Stalin needed cotton for the army. He decided it should be grown in a dry area. That required diverting water from the Aral Sea. It is the fourth biggest inland lake in the world, and it shrank to less than half its size. Soviet planners caused catastrophic environmental costs to the whole population. All right, that was then. Now the rules would be different. Now the rule would be green. Strong government policy, which does not allow the greed and profiteering all the time we hear socialists say, well, next time we'll get it right, next time. How many next times do you get? Many, apparently. What just happened? Socialist mismanagement led to the disaster at Chernobyl. First response, lie to the public. The accident is well under control. This HBO series is pretty accurate. Cut the phone lines. The first thing they did was tell everyone to shut up about it. Contain the spread of misinformation. Yet major American media still claim socialists protected the environment. A New York Times op-ed credited Lenin's eco-warriors for establishing nature preserves. These are not nature preserves, it's a fantasy. You can call something a nature preserve and feel good about it, but when you use it as a dumping ground for heavy metals, for radioactive waste, in what sense is it a nature preserve? Capitalists destroy nature, too. Free societies need some government rules to prevent that. But free markets with property rights often protect things better than bureaucrats can. You get a private farmer. They're concerned about the ability of the farm to grow food next year, year after year after year after, 100 years into the future, long after that farmer is going to be gone. Why? Because the farm has a capital value. That's the capital and capitalism. And the consequence is they want to maximize that. That protects the environment. Also, capitalism creates wealth. When people have enough money that they don't have to worry about starving or freezing, they can afford to protect nature. That's why capitalist countries have cleaner air and water you can swim in. And they can afford to pay for wild animal preserves. When no one has any property rights and people are poor, tigers and elephants are considered a burden and pests, and they kill them. When you're wealthier, you can afford more amenities. You can care about the environment. Socialists say they care, but the real world shows that if we hope to protect the environment, capitalism just works better. Since capitalism does work, Please click that button if you like these videos and would like to help us make more. When America promised to take care of us old people, politicians basically lit a fuse.
Now this fuse will happily burn without this exploding, meaning Social Security and Medicare run out of money. As long as there are a lot of you paying into the system and not too many of us taking things out. Problem is, we old people keep living longer. When Social Security began, most Americans didn't even reach age 65. Social Security was just for the few who did. But today, so many of us live well beyond 65 that there are just not enough of you young people to pay for us. Politicians won't admit that. Social Security and Medicare are a guarantee. We hear that from both parties. As long as I'm president, no one will lay a hand on your Medicare or your Social Security. And the most clueless say, Social Security today is not on the line going broke. But it just is. Social Security reserve funds are going to run out by 2034. In addition, Medicare will go broke because doctor, drug, and hospital bills keep getting more expensive. Of course they do, because no one has an incentive to save money. Under government's popular health insurance program, everything seems free. So none of us pay attention to costs. So costs keep rising faster than what your payments will cover. Soon there won't be enough of you young people to keep this from blowing up. Sooner or later it will blow up. Dan Mitchell of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. We don't know how fast that fuse burns. Is it gonna blow up two years from now or 20 years from now? After a Republican senator proposed small changes that might preserve entitlements, President Biden said this at the State of the Union. Some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Republicans booed and complained too. But Medicare and Social Security do need rescue. A lot of our politicians figure out, well, maybe it blows up in five years or 10 years or 20 years, but I won't be in office anymore. It's clear why politicians fear telling the truth about this problem. France's president pushed through a plan to raise retirement age to just 64. The reform is necessary to prevent the pension system from going bankrupt. Unions stopped picking up garbage and people started protesting. Months later, they're still protesting. All this over being asked to work fewer years than Americans do. There is massive rejection among the public. You have people around the world who just think somehow if you say something's a right, they should get it. Healthcare should be treated as a human right. And they don't even think about, well, who's gonna pay for it? Or they say rich people will pay. Tax the billionaires. But even if government took all the wealth from every billionaire, it wouldn't come close to covering America's coming bankruptcy. Raising taxes won't solve it, and politicians fear raising retirement age or cutting benefits because they think you won't vote for them. So what will happen? The only other alternative is printing money. I suspect that's what America will do. The politicians won't face this, but they'll get to the point where they don't have enough. They'll just print more and we'll be like Zimbabwe. That's definitely the danger. Zimbabwe's leader printed more money to fund his spending. Soon there was so much inflation, they started printing these billion dollar bills. When the currency collapsed, they were printing hundred trillion dollar bills. Yet politicians don't learn. President Biden unveiling his nearly seven trillion dollar budget today. There are ways to defuse the bomb. Biden might spend less. We could raise retirement age. 
Mitchell proposes what countries like Australia and Chile did, private savings accounts. But we need to do something. Sooner or later, bad things will happen to senior citizens because the government will either cut their benefits or all of a sudden they'll start rationing health care or the reimbursement rates will be so low that you won't be able to find a doctor or a hospital to treat you as a senior citizen. That's our future if we don't privatize, raise retirement age or cut benefits. This will explode. President Biden and the media are excited that the dollar could go digital. Central bank digital currencies. The world is going to see a functioning CBDC very soon. A CBDC, that's a national digital currency controlled by the feds. When you use your wallet to pay for something, the Fed would take the digital cash out of your wallet and deposit it into the merchants. I think it'd be a total disaster. Sometimes government does things that may appear to be benevolent, but really are kind of like a wolf in sheep's clothing. This is a wolf coming as a wolf. For months, I tried to get Governor Ron DeSantis to do an interview. The government's plan for digital money got him to say yes. The media make it sound like it's a great thing. (laughs) Well, uh, if you don't care about your privacy and you want the government to have even more control over the economy, then maybe it is. But if you uh, don't trust uh, central authority, then you should see this immediately as something that is very problematic. But a lot of people do trust central authority. I'll read from the president's executive order on responsible development of digital assets. This will protect consumers, investors, and the environment. That last one's a tell because I think they would impose certain criteria. You're filling up too much tank of gas. Wait a minute, climate change, you can't be doing that. You bought another firearm? No, no, no. And if you do buy or do the wrong thing, they can easily cut off your money. That's what Canada's government did when these truckers protested vaccine rules. If your truck is being used in these protests, your corporate accounts will be frozen. When the government did block their bank accounts, that stopped the protests. Control over an American digital dollar would give our government even more power. They want to impose ideology through the economy. DeSantis is so upset about this plan for a digital dollar, he just persuaded Florida's legislature to ban its use in his state. This will be a national issue. Why is it the business of a governor? Look, this is part of our role. There's a back and forth between the federal government and the states, and so we're pushing back against things we don't think are good. What we did at the state level is protect Floridians against a unilateral action by either Treasury or the Federal Reserve. They do not have the authority to do that. He says what the Fed is doing may not even be legal. The Federal Reserve has come out and said, we would only do it after, quote, consulting with the legislative and executive branches. Ideally, we'd get specific congressional authorization. Wait a minute. It's not ideal that you get congrats. That's what the Constitution requires. The advocates make a digital currency sound so good. As trusted as cash, as convenient as a payment app, yet also benefit from the same blockchain technology which underpins cryptocurrencies. Make cross-border payments easier. Promote financial inclusion (laughs) and payment system stability. When I started talking about some of the dangers from privacy and all that, The corporate press, all these outlets, they all of a sudden started converging that DeSantis is trying to promote conspiracy theories. They basically hate you. Part of that is true, but I think part of it is 
This is something that they care about. And the question is, why would these organizations care so much about a central bank digital currency? Is it really because they are really that invested in cross-border transactions? Of course not. It's because this is something that could help them advance their ideology of having more central authority and more supervisory power over the average American. But if the Fed doesn't develop its own digital currency, America's gonna fall behind, Wall Street Journal. The US financial system is still pretty old school when it comes to moving money around. And that's not a great way to run a modern global economy. Oh, please, they wanna to move to a cashless society, which would basically mean the Federal Reserve, Treasury Department, would have supervisory jurisdiction over all of your transactions. It's true that sometimes people use cash to buy illegal things, but cash has advantages. Cash is independence. Yeah, you have the cash in your wallet, you can go, you can make these transactions. It's not dependent on somebody else. It's uh, private. It's private. So is cryptocurrency. It lets people buy things without government money. Some in government don't like that. Legitimate digital public money could help drive out bogus digital private money. She clearly would be somebody that, that rejects any type of digital asset that's not controlled by a central authority. They don't like Bitcoin. They don't like some of these other things. And the reason is they don't control it. That's why they don't like it. Governor DeSantis and I then talked for almost an hour about other things like Florida's new law governing sex education about his anti-mask mandates when COVID hit, about immigration and his flying migrants to Massachusetts. I asked him some tough questions and we had a good discussion. I'll post that full interview soon. 